On April 26, 1986, a safety test gone awry began the worst nuclear accident in human history. Reactor number four at Chernobyl exploded as a result, causing a fire that burned for 10 more days. Evacuation of the surrounding cities began soon after, and eventually there was an exclusion zone 18 miles around where the plant was. It's heavily guarded even now to prevent people from entering. 28 of the 600 workers who were at the plant died within the first four months following the accident. Another 106 had acute radiation poisoning. Thyroid cancer remains the lasting effect of the accident, especially among the children of Chernobyl. In the more than 30 years since the accident, we're still waiting to see what will happen. How many more cases of cancer will be traced to the radiation spill, especially the workers who responded? So even areas well outside the exclusion zone have to be cautious at this point. Residents are warned not to eat mushrooms or berries and to peel all root vegetables before eating. Those foods have the highest concentration of radiation or at least the highest possibility for it. Workers still regularly go into the exclusion zone to tend the sarcophagus. The concrete structure that was built to contain the reactor and its toxic content. Those workers are limited to 12 to 15, 12, 15 minute trips per month. How long before the area is deemed safe for development, for people to live and work there if people tending it can only go in 12 times, 15 minutes at a time. Conservative estimates say 300 years, and it's a number that is reached by counting the half-lives of cesium. So in recent years, particularly beginning with the 25th anniversary of the accident, People have been allowed back into the exclusion zone. The length of visits is limited. Some have to don special suits to stay a while longer. Those visitors are advised not to touch certain plants, especially moss, which absorb more of the radiation. Shoes that you wear into the exclusion zone are usually discarded since they come into contact with so much radiation. And it's not until you see images of the absence of life in the exclusion zone, that the devastation sinks in. Animals are taking over the area, and so far, most people say those animals have no major defects or deformities. But people have totally disappeared, at least from the activities of daily life. The town of Pripyat, built for the families of the workers at the plant, is often photographed now that people are allowed in. It was only 16 years old when the disaster occurred and was home to nearly 50,000 people. The images from inside are haunting reminders of what was and what is no more. The remains of a store cash register open, presumably the last money taken from it as people left. 
a carnival had been scheduled, and so a Ferris wheel was constructed that was never used. And it was not the only ride left to ruin there in the exclusion zone. Piano in a concert hall was never played again. A school was sitting empty with its students. And gas masks were left, left in piles as people were evacuated. There is desolation everywhere. Desolation unlike anything most of us have ever seen. These are images of a civilization being undone day by day for centuries until humans can safely walk there again. And I can't help but think that it bears a great resemblance to a valley filled with dry bones. Bones that had baked in the sun for years, that had been weathered by sand and wind, Bones that were cracking from their dryness. Bones that were so very, very dry. All signs of life removed. So dry, they're just a few days away from turning to dust again. Circling them doesn't reveal anything new. They're all the same, all distinguishable heaps of bones. But the question Comes. The question comes, mortal, can these bones live? And there, I wonder if Ezekiel paused. If the prophet thought long and hard before his answer came, everything within him had to say, walk away. Everything within him had to say, no, they have almost returned to dust. But Ezekiel was a prophet. Ezekiel knew that he was not speaking for himself. Ezekiel knew this vision was God's and that his words were not his own. And so he needed to be ready to respond with God's words. So Ezekiel replies, oh God, you know. That needs background music. That needs a shift from a minor key to a major key. Ezekiel's response sounds like a cry of uncertainty. It's also a cry of certainty that God is the one in charge of this. God is the one casting this vision, and Ezekiel will not walk away until that vision becomes clear. And God's vision becomes clear in an instant. God is not done. Despite the dryness of these bones, Despite the many years that they had lain bleached and weathered, God is not done. God did not walk away from this valley. Instead, God brought Ezekiel to this valley. And there in the midst of desolation, the most desolate, hopeless place imaginable, God commands Ezekiel prophesy. And Ezekiel did. At his words, a rattling shook the walls of the valley, and bones became skeletons. Skeletons were suddenly held together by muscle, then fat covered the muscle, and finally skin. Humans standing before them, humans where there had only been bones. Humans almost. 
bodies, but not humans, not yet. For some reason, Ezekiel's prophecy had not done all it needed to. Did his voice tremble? Did he forget for a moment? He spoke for the one who called all things into being. So that one, that one spoke a second time, prodding Ezekiel, prophesy. And he did, this time calling forth the breath of life to the bodies as God had breathed into humans at the beginning of creation. And filled with that breath, humans finally, they stood, a vast army. A vast living army where there had only been bones. And to think Ezekiel had ever questioned, can these bones live? To think he had ever looked at something and believed, surely God is done with this. But that's what happens when we look at bones. That's what happens when we look at things that we can only equate with death. It's hard to see anything other than the bones. We are in the midst of a pandemic that has claimed 600,000 lives. But that pandemic has also laid bare our own country's deep inequalities. The people most likely to be affected are those who are poor or sick. People who are poor have struggles self-isolating because they live in crowded homes, rely on public transit, and are considered essential workers in grocery stores, in restaurants, in retail stores. People in hospitals and nursing homes do not have that option. And those poorest of the people most disproportionately affected also don't have access to health care in the best of times. In the U.S., in part places all over the world, black and brown communities are bearing the brunt of the crisis. And the U.S. has led in the number of new cases and number of deaths over not just days, but weeks and months. Shortages of personal protective equipment for health care workers remains a problem. And so those bones are piling up. Those bones are piling up, stacking up, filling the valley. In January of this year, U.S. officials went before a federal judge in San Diego saying that they were highly confident that they had accounted for all of the children who were separated under the Trump administration's 2018 zero tolerance policy. Under that policy, children were separated from their parents at the border, even if they came for legal means. The tally reported by the, U by the LA Times was 4,368 children. Those children have not been returned to their families. And the same administration used this pandemic to justify a policy that would release the children without their parents. Never mind that seeking asylum in the US means coming to the U.S., getting picked up by border control and making an asylum claim, and that is and has been the legal way to seek asylum. In the same era, seeking asylum in the U.S. has become nearly impossible. 
And many of the people who are detained are awaiting an asylum hearing. Even now, there are three family detention centers still operating in the U.S. And on any day, Arizona alone has 7,000 people in immigration detention, including children. The bones are stacking up, filling the valley. And as I begin trying to reflect on everything going on around us, I keep joking in a painful way about the dumpster fire of 2020, I realized I could not sort it all out. George Floyd, who is one of many killed in police custody. Breonna Taylor killed in her home when the person police were looking to arrest was already in custody. We have a president who disregards science and advisors and tweets as a form of communication. Those tweets are often blatant lies. The Washington Post has long kept a record of how often a president lies. It's in a searchable database. And by Trump's 1,226 day in office, he had made 19,000 false or misleading claims far surpassing any other president. No one else comes close. And access to health care, especially for women, is being taken away. The protections of the Affordable Care Act are being threatened and dismantled. And the truth is my family, like many people employed in small businesses, have no option for health care except for the marketplace. We have no protection except for that legislation. And the bones are stacking up, filling the valley. And still God says, mortal, can these bones live? It would seem the world is dying. And it is. The world is dying. The world is dying for you to believe that God is not done. The world is dying for you to prophesy what God has spoken. The world is dying because the world has not heard that it can live. The world is dying. But God is not done. God is certain that these bones can live again. Are you?